Welcome to this episode of Anesthesia on Air. This is the podcast from the Royal College of Anesthetists. In this podcast, which is the third of the series, looking at the heritage of the Royal College itself and the history of anesthesia, we will be looking at the NHS at 75. I'm Anna Maria Rollin. I'm a retired consultant anaesthetist, and I currently chair the Heritage and Archives Committee of the Royal College of Anaesthetists. I'm delighted to introduce and to have joining me in this conversation Dr. David Wilkinson and Dr. Karan Verma. David is a retired consultant anaesthetist and a historian of great distinction. He was president of the World Federation of Societies of Anesthesiologists. He was the Wood Library Museum laureate in the history of anaesthesia, and he has been president of the History of Anesthesia Society. He has written multiple chapters on clinical matters and on the history of anaesthesia. He will not mind my mentioning that he is roughly contemporaneous with the NHS. Karan Verma is a ST5 anaesthetics trainee in the East of England deanery. He was originally a graduate of the Government Medical College in Chandigarh, India, and came to the UK in pursuit of the FRCA. Astonishingly, he fell in love with the NHS and decided he wanted to continue working here, I believe, despite the resistance of his wife. I'm glad that he won. Um, at the moment, he's involved with a number of academic things at the University of East Anglia, and he is currently the trainee member of the Heritage and Archives Committee of the Royal College of Anesthetists. So I would invite the two of you to look at the history of the NHS, now 75 years old, from different ends of the age spectrum. Thank you, Dr. Rowling. Um, Dr. Wilkinson, could you please uh, shed some light on how and who delivered an anesthetic when the newly elected Labour government announced the commencement of the National Health Service on July 5th, 1948. Sure, thanks very much. And thanks, Anna Maria, for your introduction. Um, I think what, what you meant by your um, reference to my um, being close to the same age at the NHS was I was born just a few months before the NHS was born. So yes, we're of a similar age. Um, Garan, it's a great question. I think that um, really the, uh, the majority of anaesthetics uh, taking place from the 1930s onwards were being given by GPs. And these GPs had um, been taught how to give anaesthetics when they were medical students. And they carried on uh, the techniques that they'd been taught. So these were mainly um, using chloroform or ether on an open mask. Some of them would have had a few gadgets, or some would have had a Clovis inhaler, and some would have had a Hewitt's inhaler. But um, very few machines were being used. And in the voluntary and regional hospitals that, that were in, in existence, there were one or two who were also classed as, as anaesthetists. And they were usually mentioned as visiting anaesthetists because that's what they did. They potted in when there was a case to be done. But all the emergency work was being done by housemen. Uh, young, uh, fairly untrained in anaesthesia, who just picked it up as they went along, which for emergency work must have been really challenging for them. And then in 1932, when the Association of Anaesthetists was founded, one of the first things they wanted to do was set an examination. And so they set up the DA, which was uh, run by the conjoint board initially. And that 
um, became if you if you passed the DA that gave you when the when the Second World War started that gave you recognition as a specialist in the armed forces and so um, there was now an increased level of expectation as to the quality of anesthesia that would be provided if you held the DA I think that's quite a big difference really and then as the as we move towards the start of the the inception of the of the NHS. There are all sorts of manoeuvres going on um, to try and create a better status for anaesthesia. Sure, thank you. So um, can we safely assume that the uh, specialty of anaesthesia is roughly the same age as the NHS or would we say is it slightly longer? Well, yeah, I, it's it's very difficult. Obviously, people have been giving anaesthetics for a very long time um, before that. But the, the sort of professionality of anaesthesia really came into existence with the inception of the of the NHS. Um, and that was really down to um, two people talking together uh, very closely. Uh, one was Archie Marston, who was president of the, uh, of the Association of Anaesthetists. And the other one was the president of the uh, Royal College of Surgeons. Uh, Alfred Webb Webb Johnson. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And uh, those two knew each other well. And it was the president of the Royal College of Surgeons who put in the effort to Parliament to ensure that anaesthesia was recognised as an equal consultant status to all the other specialities. Now, up until that point, uh, the the NHS or the government was going to recognise surgery, medicine and obstetrics and gynaecology as the three consultant bodies. And it was um, the president of the Royal College of Surgeons who made that forceful argument to include anaesthesia as a as a major consultant present. Very interesting. So as much as we have all the fights with the surgeons, I should say friendly fights, <laughs> we actually believe that we should owe our gratitude to the Royal College of Surgeons. Definitely. Uh, I mean, obviously, there was a huge amount of negotiation going on between the association and the um, College of Surgeons. And there was input from the, the British Medical Association and the anaesthetic section of the Royal Society of Medicine. But really, it was the, the surgeons who were able to persuade government that this was the right thing to do. And so that's the other interesting point you brought up is about the consultant status. And this is not something that we could take it for granted. So the faculty of anaesthetist uh, was formed and we had to earn the right to have a status as a consultant. That's uh, that's also another interesting fact. It's true. And and I think um, the, the definition that they started out with as a consultant was that you had to be giving anaesthetics for at least five years in a recognised hospital and that you were in possession of the DA. And when the faculty um, started to look at this and other consultants started looking at that DA examination, it was realised that it, it wasn't really of the same standard as that expected of those that were becoming consultants who were surgeons, physicians or uh, obstetricians. And so uh, the faculty took over the running of the uh, examination and split it into a two-part DA and added in basic science 
into the part one of the examination. So it became a little bit more as a, a more professional examination. That was in 1948 when the NHS started. And then in 1953, they renamed it as a fellowship of the Faculty of Anesthesia of the Royal College of Surgeons. So it became the FFA, uh, which um, a large number of people then uh, invested in. That's a great insight into the evolution of the diploma in anesthetics and how it's all split up. So to all the people who have actually been questioning, why do we do basic sciences and what is the worth? So here we have the answer to that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely right. There's another thing that's been uh, documented is that these army doctors who became these expert anesthetists, often working with these most difficult circumstances, and thereby after the war, World War II specifically, um, there was demobilization and people were still seeking employment as anesthetists. And it is said that the NHS, with these large number of salaried hospital posts, gave this incentive for the specialty and all these people to be uh, employed. Yeah, I think that that is really true. I think um, I think it wasn't just the the army; it was the RAF and the Navy who were also had um, fully trained anaesthetists who were practicing in, as you say, very difficult circumstances. Many of those people had gone into anaesthesia because they were told to do so, and then found they enjoyed it once they were in the forces. And then often were able to sit the DA while they were in the forces. So when they were demobilized in 1945, as you rightly say, they were wanted to continue in something that they really enjoyed. And uh, all the regional hospitals started to offer consultant posts in anesthesia. And some of those were taken up by GPs who had the DA already some that had really specialised, and others they came out of the armed forces altogether and, and moved into the speciality. And I think um, it was quite a, an interesting time because often the, the link between the GPs who referred patients into the surgeons in the hospitals uh, were much closer links than the surgeons in the hospitals with their compatriot consultants and anaesthetists. And so often you'd see the GPs coming into the hospital to give the anaesthetic for maybe a private case. And the, and the consultant anaesthetist who was perhaps more skilled was sitting on the sidelines doing nothing because the surgeons wanted to continue with the referral patterns from the GPs. Well, that's a fact we haven't heard much about. That's, that's mind-boggling, actually. It is strange, isn't it? But anyways, um, moving on, uh, we know that in 1968, the Anesthetic Research Society got formally established out of a very small formal group. So was research still very nascent in, in these times? Yeah, I think that if you um, look back through um, the journals of that era uh, in the lead up to um, the inception of the NHS, a lot of the articles that you see in there are, this is how I did something, and this is my experience, and this is what I think is best. 
and there's no sort of randomized double-blind trials or there's often a lot of references referring to what other people may have done uh, but this was um, the sort of my best technique and this is how I do it and so it's right and, and this tended to get published and you could read it and you could accept it or not. In, in what was in 1937 um, Macintosh was appointed professor at Oxford, the first uh, academic sort of um, professor of anaesthesia in the UK. And then a whole series of sort of lecturers and uh, senior academics started to appear around the country. So there was Edinburgh, Cardiff, Newcastle and Liverpool uh, started to create academic departments. And that was followed uh, by Belfast, Leeds, Glasgow, and Bristol, and the Royal College of Surgeons had its own professorial chair uh, very quickly within the Royal College of Surgeons as well, taken over by BOC. And so that sort of level of academia suddenly started to produce much more realistic uh, research and uh, involving huge jumps in, in understanding of respiratory physiology, uh, as produced by people like John Nunn, uh, and then an understanding of cardiovascular physiology. So the whole concept of, of a scientific basis to what anesthesia was doing started to rapidly evolve. Now that is definitely a good point and a valid one about how the start of anesthesia began, but the research which got about the respiratory and cardiovascular systems and how important these are to what we do, I'm sure this has uh, highlighted that point. Mm. The other thing uh, was about the uh, CPODs, which is the Confidential Inquiry into Perioperative Deaths. In 1987, this was a joint initiative of anesthetists and surgeons in Great Britain. And it said that the recommendation that these practitioners audit these practices to improve patient care, and this was an important stimulus to get quality assurance into anesthesia. I, yeah, I think that's something that anesthetists have always been interested in, sort of morbidity and mortality. It's um, uh, people started collecting uh, Simpson back in the 1840s, started 1850s, started collecting comparisons between uh, those that had had amputations in London teaching hospitals and those in Scotland and things like that. And then when the association started, one of the first things they got very interested in was collecting data on mortality and morbidity in anaesthesia. And so that gradually um, led to a whole series of publications uh, and suggestions on how people should improve their quality of care. And I think uh, it's very interesting that, that there were defined limits about what um, various organisations could do. So that there was the, the anaesthetic section of the Royal Society of Medicine who ran academic meetings every month. There was an academic meeting. And so people would flock to that and learn what the latest things were going on. And these started to get, become more and more scientific. And when the association started in 1932, it deliberately refused to have any academic meetings because it didn't want to come into competition with the Royal Society of Medicine anaesthetic section, which was so important to the profession. And people would come in from Bristol 
uh, and down from Birmingham to a meeting, down from Liverpool to a meeting, and then back again that night so that they could continue to learn. So it was a, a very big thing. And I think that development of academia as well with in terms of teaching anesthesia came in parallel with uh, the sort of improvement in, in the quality of care. And at the same time, as the DA evolved into a two-part exam and then into the FFA, so you had to have proper teaching so that um, young trainees could learn, you know, how they were going to pass the exam. And that meant um, they had to go to usually academic centres that ran meetings to teach them how to pass the exam. Oh, that is a great overview when we think about the uh, specialty of anesthesia and over the years with this NHS about how it all started and how it all picked up with all the safety, the research, the academia, all these audits, quality improvements. So everything that we all doing today, we kind of have had a nice spotlight of all these uh, initial things. That's a very uh, good historic preview. And now I guess if we shift a bit more to a more clinical anecdote. Uh, with your own views, uh, would you exactly remember how did you give your first anesthetic? Was it a lot of drugs, equipment, or how was it in those days? Well, I think, you know, I can't remember exactly the first one I ever gave. I uh, it would have been as a medical student, I was um, encouraged to um, give anesthetics. We had one particular um, consultant who would show you a case and then would go and sit in the coffee room and tell you to do the next one uh, as a medical student. And uh, that was um, usually quite challenging. He had a particular anesthetic apparatus, which had a vaporizer for halothane inside the circuit, so that it would produce 30% halothane in the, in the bag. And the patient would gradually breathe gently away, and then their breathing would sort of stop. Really. And then after a while, presumably the halothane oozed out of the system and they'd start breathing again. And uh, he only gave you one message. He said, whatever you do, boy, don't squeeze the back um, when they stop breathing, because then you'd be they, they were already too deep and you were going to pump 30 percent halothane. So um, we had, I think, one of the greatest gifts we have in our profession is um, the technicians and orderlies that we had helping us. And as a, as a medical student, I used to depend a great deal on these extremely helpful men and women who, who made my life um, sort of possible, really. But in those days, you know, you went in, you took the patient into this consultant surgeon um, who was usually known for his charm and, and wit. And um, you'd carry on with a case and things would often not go exactly as you'd hoped. So you'd ask the technician, would you pop in and ask his name to come in, please? And uh, it's, it was quite extraordinary how the consultant would amble in and say, yes, you're doing fine, and tap you on the shoulder and walk out again. And you'd, you'd just carry on, as it were. And uh, the, the patient survived and everything went well in the end. But the techniques that uh, when I became a trainee, um, there weren't sort of butterfly needles. There were available, but we didn't tend to use them. So you'd put the patient to sleep with an injection 
in their cubital fossa of thiopentone, usually. You'd take the needle out and put a pad and get them to squeeze their arm up. And then you'd um, start an inhalational anesthetic at the top end with oxygen, nitrous oxide, halothane, uh, breathing spontaneously on a mask. And you'd hold that mask with your um, left hand, usually, and you could write something with your right hand then. And this, this would go on for hours, often, holding that, that airway with a, an oral airway. I used to enjoy using nasopharyngeal airways because I think that was less trauma to the teeth. And you could sometimes have a, a harness that you could hold the mask around the back of the head and lift up the chin all in the same thing. So on rare occasions, you could set the patient so they were breathing perfectly without you having to hold the, the head and the mask on. But those were fairly rare. And I developed muscles in my hand. I have no idea. Uh, the strength of my handshake was pretty frightening. Um, but uh, that was purely due to the grip that I had holding masks on. Uh, I must definitely say that is a skill we should all be very proud of, um, especially of those age, whoever has done that. Um, but I will say that you must have remarkable contemporaneous record skills because that is something we all are getting more lazy with all these digital records. And I cannot believe with one hand anesthetizing and one hand you're writing all the monitoring. Well, you see, that there wasn't any monitoring. So, um, you, you, you know, we weren't writing down. There was very occasionally there'd be a blood pressure cuff on when I first started. Really? Um, very occasionally. And there were numerous consultants who would tell you to take that thing off the arm because they didn't like it when you were, you could tell the blood pressure by the pressure on the face. And um, they wanted you to give a clinical anesthetic, looking at the color of the patient, the pupil's eyes, and um, watching their respiration. And so monitoring, no ECGs, very rare to see an ECG in theater, no uh, capnography. So there was no, that you were the monitor. And some um, wise person suggested that uh, probably the best piece of monitoring you could ever have as an anesthetist was a one foot length of string. And you tied one end of the string to the patient and the other hand, other end to the anesthetist. So the anesthetist never left the theatre and, and we stayed there and monitored the patient. And the machine had no monitors either. There was an oxygen alarm um, called a boson's whistle uh, on the early machines, which um, meant that if the oxygen cylinder emptied, then the nitrous oxide that was left would cause a whistle to blow. Uh -huh. um, but that was very good, except you could switch it off. Um, so it was quite often switched off and not used, or it had a battery in it which corroded and nobody used those. Don't have to worry about that. Uh, forget it. So there was no uh, inspired oxygen alarm, uh, no CO2 monitoring, no inhalational agent monitoring, nothing. Following from what you've been saying, I mean, we are incredibly now incredibly safety conscious. Yeah. And it's not anesthesia is very safe, but it's very safe because we do dangerous things very safely, not Correct. because it is intrinsically safe. So can you tell us a little bit about the development of the safety culture from the time that you and I remember when I was told off for using butterflies because it was wasteful? You know, leaving in indwelling needles, there was terrible waste of resource to where we are now where literally we watch patients heartbeat by heartbeat and breath by breath. So yeah. how did that develop? I mean, I think. Um, when we were providing a purely clinical anaesthetic without monitoring, we watched every breath 
and felt every pulse. And I, uh, we often, I used to often use a precordial stethoscope. A precordial stethoscope, you can hear the breathing and you can hear the heartbeat very, very uh, clearly. A monooral uh, precordial stethoscope was a fantastic monitoring tool. And so there was an intensity about safety, even in those days, to, to watch things very carefully. And you became attuned to the movement of the bag, the, the rhythm that was going on. And you became attuned to the exact sound of the ventilator as it ventilated the patient. So if there was a change in compliance, you, you, you could hear it happen because the, something happened in the, in the, in the a ventilator. The thing that really radically changed that, in my view, uh, was the publication of the Harvard Standards of Monitoring, uh, which was then taken up by the Association of Anesthetists and published as their monitoring guide. So that suddenly you had to have an ECG, uh, a non-invasive blood pressure cuff, a capnograph and a peripheral nerve stimulator and temperature probes were optional extras. And that really uh, meant that you were giving a much more attentive, detailed anaesthetic than was happening. And then the machine manufacturers started to put in uh, devices which monitored the machine at the same time as you were monitoring the patient and the machine. So you had uh, oxygen alarms and vapour monitoring coming through. And it, the the level of monitoring that's then gone on since then uh, just adds to the um, basic safety. There is always the sort of a worry um, that, especially when you're a new trainee, uh, you're you're so amazed by this bank of monitors that you just spend your time gazing at the monitor and you're not looking at the patient in the same way as we used to observe the patient. Because we were constantly sort of touching the forehead, feeling the temperature, feeling the perfusion of the of the skin, sensing what was going on in great detail with that patient. That's what we were taught to do. And that provided a a basic level of safety, which is uh, very hard to duplicate. And all this machinery adds to it, but it still requires you to observe the patient very carefully. And more importantly, what the surgeon is actually up to. Is he quietly putting a sucker in and, and having half the circulating volume going into the sucker without mentioning it to you. So you have to keep your eyes and ears going the whole time and not just depend on on some gadgetry sitting next to you, in my view. Yes, that's a very valid point you make about um, the watchful vigilance of the anaesthetist and uh, the sort of so-called sixth sense that perhaps you've had much better in those times and now we've been getting more used to just monitors and not looking at the patient, but the patient is always the one we should be looking at. Definitely, definitely. Um, In the 50s, they say that um, we cannot quite forget uh, mentioning Professor Cecil Gray and uh, D. Tuberkrarin, which actually changed uh, with muscle relaxation. Yeah, I think that that's very true. The the in the in the pre NHS days, if you wanted good muscle relaxation, so the surgeon could get good access into the abdomen. Uh, without having to fight uh, all the muscular tone, you had to give a very deep anaesthetic with either um, ether or chloroform. And as you deepened the anaesthetic, so the toxicity became slightly worse and recovery took a lot longer. 
the introduction of cyclopropane uh, in the in the uh, 30s revolutionized this because it would provide a profound deep anesthetic with very good muscle relaxation and um, you could give it very high concentrations of oxygen with um, cyclopropane and avoid nitrous oxide altogether and just gently as the patient became more and more relaxed you could take over their ventilation uh, and there was this concept of the educated hand gently ventilating the patient and feeling the compliance of the chest and, and creating a, a field that the surgeons liked. And the other great advantage of this technique was that often these patients who were having major laparotomies, especially as emergencies, had tremendous electrolyte imbalances. Mm. So that uh, if you used muscle relaxants, it was often very difficult to reverse them afterwards. They had had uh, a tendency not to breathe quite as well as they should, and often you use too much muscle relaxant and things. But there is no doubt that the, uh, I mean, the big disadvantage of cyclopropane was that it was extremely explosive. And there were some very nasty explosions with cyclopropane. Uh, the, one of the professors um, at the Royal College of Surgeons, the BOC professor, uh, Woolmer, used to run a course where you'd all go up onto the roof and he'd fill a balloon full of cyclopropane and light it. And there'd be this big explosion over uh, over the college. Um, I don't think the fire brigade ever came along, but it was a, a remarkable demonstration of, of what the dangers were. And, uh, and so um, cyclopropane started to fade out because it was a, a, a little more difficult to use. And so the introduction of muscle relaxants changed everything completely, allowed you to intubate the patient smoothly, it allowed you to create a feel that the surgeons um, reveled in because they had total abdominal relaxation. But um, often getting the doses right uh, for the curare for, for because every patient was slightly different and particularly their electrolyte status was slightly different. Uh, and the amount of calcium and magnesium, et cetera, circulating around uh, in really sick patients can cause real problems trying to reverse patients afterwards. And it was only after that that really peripheral nerve stimulators started to come in to let you know the degree of neuromuscular blockade that you were, you were dealing with. Mm. I guess the another uh, big talk is about the 80s, and that's something which I also kind of uh, heard about shortly uh, in my training is about how the British anesthetist Archie Brain came up with this uh, laryngeal mask airway, which uh, so-called revolutionized um, how we all started practicing. But it was not only that, but the simultaneous discovery of propofol. Uh, did you also feel this as very profound? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, such a, a huge change in practice. Um, I can remember... We had a, a North London um, group of anaesthetists, uh, a little society of North London. And uh, we went uh, as a group to the London Hospital one day. And Archie Brain stood there in the lecture theatre and demonstrated his prototypes, laryngeal mask. And I can remember sitting in the back row with my friends, digging one another in the, in the ribs, laughing our heads off at this idiot who'd created what? Who's going to use a gadget like that? I mean... 
obviously we just hold a mask on. That's what you do. I mean, really, what a stupid idea putting something like that down the throat. And um, I think he had the last laugh without a shadow of a doubt because it, it just sort of swept in and it made our lives possible, really. And the it's interesting if if you ever try and put a, a laryngeal mask down with thiopentone, it's quite a challenge <laughs> because you don't depress the laryngeal reflexes very much. And uh, so the introduction at the same time as propofol, another British invention by ICI, um, really uh, made a huge difference to practice um, and, and made it possible, really. And that caused the huge surge in day surgery as well. And, and so the NHS suddenly started to switch from so much inpatient care and bed usage um, to day-stay care, um, purely really because of propofol and the laryngeal mask airway, which, which made it all possible. I mean, prior to that, there were lots of other drugs which were short-acting and uh, effective, but they all had sort of side effects. And, and uh, I feel sort of slightly sorry for uh, the current group of anaesthetists today because they only really had propofol, really. I suppose there's ketamine as an induction agent for some, and uh, it, there's probably some etomidate hiding away in a drawer somewhere. But I must have had about 10 or 12 different intravenous induction agents. Um, and I don't know how how many inhalational agents um, uh, we had available? And now again, you're you're you know somebody's put the knife into desflurane because it's destroying the world, and so we have sevaflurane and and isoflurane. Really, there's probably a bit of enflurane lurking somewhere, but that's very much in in our um, affluent world. If you go outside the affluent world, it's very different. So, as you say, variety is the spice of life, but. Um... <laughs> We'll take what we have now. Uh, but as a as you were talking about the NHS and uh, coming more with daycare surgery, as uh, anesthesia in the NHS, we've been a big service, and there's not been that much of uh, fund generation. But I think these new branches have perhaps uh, changed how we've been consuming and perhaps now delivering uh, some sort of income. Yeah, I think. Um... It's very hard for uh, managers uh, of, a, of a hospital group to understand that uh, we are a service um, department. We cannot generate income ourselves. Uh, we we utilize income uh, with the equipment that we use and the, the drugs and, and all the apparatus. And uh, unless you're doing sort of pain management or whatever, um, that's one of the few ways you can actually um, generate income coming into uh, a facility. So, yeah, I think that um, we, we are a, a net spender rather than a um, generator of income. But nevertheless, we are fundamental to the work of all those other people who are generating income. If we don't have anesthesia, then none of those other people can generate the income that the hospital requires. So it's sort of like a catch-22. Um, we want, you know, the surgeons or the radiologists or whatever to have everything they, they can possibly want. Um, but anesthesia, no, we, we don't see that because you don't generate income, we won't give you more money. As soon as we stop doing what they're doing, then the surgeons and the radiologists and cardiologists and everybody have to stop doing what they're doing. 
So it's a sort of catch-22. That's a very valid point. And if not directly, but I guess indirectly, we are providing uh, some amount of uh, income generation. Yeah, definitely. We're a a major force, I think. There's evidence that two-thirds of hospital patients encounter an anaesthetist, which is our most valuable statistic in terms of discussing our our value to the hospital. But what about the recent expansion, if you like, of the anaesthetic empire into perioperative care and intensive care, which now has a faculty, and pain medicine, which has a faculty? So is this an expansion of the anaesthetic empire or they're separate and unrelated specialties? I think um, anesthesia has always had interests in in these various areas, hasn't it? It's always been um, involved in the critical care of patients because of our understanding of um, physiology, particularly you know cardiac and respiratory physiology, and then renal physiology, and then metabolic physiology, etc. So it was a natural thing for us to be very heavily involved in intensive care. But I've met lots of physicians who are very skilled intensivists as well. Um, so I'm not decrying that, but but anesthesia does have a major part play in that. I think that uh, in in pain management as well, we, we have a lot of special skills we can offer. Um, and in in the care of obstetric patients, in resuscitation, in A&E departments, the ED departments, whatever you want to call it, um, outside the hospital, um, providing care. And if you were uh, flying in a helicopter down to the major um, road accident, um, it's amazing what um, skills we can apply to those situations. So um, in a way, that was the same as those original people coming out of the armed forces in the Second World War, the skills that that they were able to bring, having been on the battlefield, to then come into NHS practice were quite dramatic. And I think we've seen the same um, increase in skills uh, from trauma care in the war areas around the world that have allowed those skills to be put back into NHS practice uh, as education of, of what's been done is applied to those areas. I think that it's very hard if you, we, we tend to uh, live in this little bubble in a way here in the NHS. Um, everybody complains that things aren't all that wonderful in the NHS, but you only have to look in the less affluent world as to how absolutely brilliant the NHS is. Um, And when I was um, pottering around the world, my role with the World Federation, going to countries where the level of anaesthesia and the level of equipment and teaching and uh, financial support was something um, far less than uh, we would find in the 1920s in this country, um, let alone what it was like in 1948 with the NHS, is what's happening right now across the world. So I think uh, we should always um, have a great affection for what the NHS has provided, even though we moan a lot about it. It's been a a very great boon to the majority of us, uh, and I think it's very important we should reflect on that. I think that's a very important point uh, you bring, Dr. Wilkinson, and uh, I can personally vouch for that, uh, given that from where I came from, where I trained, and uh, how I kind of actually liked the system. Um, that is something the NHS has something very special about. And with anesthesia, we know as the single largest hospital specialty, and we as anesthetists who are quite known as the quiet men of medicine, it is a bit ironic that 
we are making a lot of noise about this dissatisfaction within the NHS that you alluded to. And we can only hope that um, we all uh, people realize uh, what the NHS has done and how important it is. And hopefully we can still talk about the NHS at 85, 95, maybe at 100. How is anesthesia going to look, the practice of anesthesia, at 85, 95 and 100? How is it going to change with your long view? Yeah, I, I'm very happy to um, think about the future. I think um, the most important thing about anesthesia really is our ability to communicate with the patients that we're going to be looking after. And no matter how much gadgetry and machinery and refinement and computerization that goes on about anesthesia, we can now have closed links um, systems so that the level of anesthesia is titrated by a machine rather than an anesthetist. And you would, it, there would be a natural progression to think that's the way it's going to go. But in my view, one of the greatest skills that an anesthetist has is to uh, take a patient who's absolutely petrified. They're about to have a not only an anaesthetic, but an operation and what it's going to be like afterwards and try and put them at ease before you begin and have them go to sleep smiling and wake up in recovery smiling still because you've got it right. Then that is a skill that I don't think any machine or anything else will ever replace. So I think in the years to come, we'll see refinement of all sorts of things. That there'll be refinement of gadgetry and the way drugs are delivered and the types of drugs that are delivered, but nothing will replace that essential communication skill, which is so vital in a good initiative. Just my view. I'd be interested in what Karan thinks. I think um, that is something we cannot really take away. That is something that will always carry on. Um, but we are perhaps not looking at this age of artificial intelligence and uh, as you say, these gadgets, and I'm sure hopefully the robots don't take over uh, anesthesia or anesthetist, but uh, time will only tell uh, where we stand. Patients, when they come to surgery, are often more frightened than they've ever been in their lives. Yep. And quite often, the anesthetist at the preoperative, the, the last minute preoperative assessment, you know, the, the one just before, or in the anesthetic room, is the last human being they talk to before surgery. And I, I agree with David that that element, no matter how technically advanced we become, that element is irreplaceable. Mm, good. It's Thank you very much indeed, David and Karan. It's an impossible task to cover the, the whole 75 years of the NHS. Thank you, Anna Maria. Thank you. The Royal College of Anaesthetists warmly welcomes members from across the globe. So if you're based outside of the UK, we invite you to discover the array of benefits available to you as an RCOA international affiliate. To learn more about joining today and to explore the benefits of membership, Simply enter RCOA International Affiliate into your preferred search engine or click the link in our show notes. Music